Welcome back, my friends, to AA Recovery Interviews. I'm your host, Howard L., and I'm an alcoholic. Sober since January 1st, 1988, one day at a time. I'm grateful you've joined us. AA Recovery Interviews is the podcast where Alcoholics Anonymous members from around the world share their extraordinary stories of experience, strength, and hope. I invite you to scroll through my catalog of more than 140 awesome interviews on any podcast app or at the website aarecoveryinterviews.com. My guest on today's podcast, Guy R., recently celebrated three years of continuous sobriety in AA. I had the opportunity to attend many of his earliest Zoom and in-person meetings and witnessed the challenges he met along the way. After years of heavy drinking and drug use, the dark cloud of addiction obfuscated Guy's best efforts to manage the disease through the cleverly crafted lies and innate charm that had worked so well for so long. In the dozens of jobs he held over the years, Guy's ability to work harder and longer than others always seemed to set him on the right track until the effects of his worsening alcoholism gave his employers little choice but to fire him. Even then, his denial of the disease kept him mired in misery and self-loathing. Towards the end, the negative consequences of his behavior, including DUI and more job firings, became irrefutable evidence of a life circling the drain. Fortunately, what little exposure to AA Guy had had from previous scrapes was enough to spur him into his first meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. He quickly found a sponsor who took him through the steps and slowly, but surely, incorporated the program into his daily life. Three years later, Guy is one of those AA members whose personal demeanor in and outside of meetings is one of humility and service. In the relatively short time I've known him, Guy is one of those sober AAs whom I feel is demonstrating the promises of the program that always materialize if we work for them. Guy's story is one of sanguinity and optimism. If you're early in sobriety, I think you'll find his story an important testament to the immediate impact of AA. If you've been around for years, you'll recognize the enduring message of hope in everything Guy has to say. So, enjoy the next hour and five minutes of AA Recovery Interviews with my friend and AA brother, Guy R. My name is Guy. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, Guy. Hi. <laughs> that was kind of unexpected, wasn't it? Yes. I was like, oh, this is going to get cut. I hope if I get it wrong. <laughs> uh, the, the joys of modern editing. Thanks so much for, for doing the AA Recovery Interviews podcast. Uh, you'll be somewhere in the 140s when it comes to the actual release of the podcast. But Perfect. You and I have known each other for, I guess, going on three years yes. since you first came in. And what was really cool today was how you quickly and without reservation agreed to do the interview. And you didn't hesitate. And to me, the non-hesitation is a great sign of a good service commitment to the program. Mm. Guy says, will you talk to so-and-so over there? Absolutely. Will you come help support a meeting that we're getting started? Sure. And that's the kind of guy I know that you are. And uh, I'm so glad that you're able to do this today. What did you think of the meeting today, anyway? It was about resentments. and Oh, yeah, my favorite, you know. Uh, <laughs> it's the number one offender. Yeah. And uh, it's really important to talk about that fairly often because yeah. it's very easy to let that, that poison slip in if you aren't... Uh, frequently watching and testing for it. What was so cool about the meeting, too, was that everybody has their own stories about how the resentments eat them up at different parts of their lives. And 
I don't know that we ever get totally over it, but like what one of our members was saying about uh, some, some legal issue that had been hanging over him for a number of years. And he's been sober a long time, and any number of different things can be a trigger to going back out and drinking. But when a guy is going through a tough time and is sitting in an AA meeting, it makes all the difference uh, in the world. You're safe for one hour. One hour at a time. Mm -hmm. That's great. Now, you've been coming to this meeting for a long time. How long have you been? What's your sobriety day? Uh, 125, 21, one day at a time. And I think it's important for people to to know what a, what a guy's sobriety date is because they hear people share and they can't tell the degree to which they're sharing from personal experience or wanting to sound knowledgeable. When I came to AA, I wanted to sound knowledgeable even though I wasn't because I didn't want to be the newcomer. No. Yeah. So your entree into AA is relatively recent compared to... 30 number. years and the guys I hang out with. So is this the first time that you ever tried to get sober? It is not. Not even close. Oh, okay. So what was there about this time? I think desperation got just a, a little bit higher. I think that the... I think my life was at stake this time. Um, or at least I, I recognize that. And I made an effort. I had so many failed attempts in the past. I tried to think about what is it that's missing in the equation. And, you know, turned out for me it was doing the program, doing you the know, program. And, and as prescribed and finding the guys who had the long-lasting sobriety and doing exactly as they did. Go figure, once I did that, everything yeah. kind of started to fall into place. Saying yes yeah. constantly, you know, do you need to go to this meeting? Yes. Or will you? Yes. That's great. I'm grateful. Yeah, I'll bet you are. Um, you're a relatively young guy, so you've got a good portion of your life ahead of you to be sober. Like some of the guys in the meeting today mm. who had 30-plus years, they were your age when they got started, which is very cool because you get to see a guy staying in sobriety and staying in AA for multiple years. 36, so <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Uh, it, uh, it's really interesting to get to see. I mean, I know guys who got sober when they were 17, and now they're close to 50. Our friend John Jay yeah. got sober at 14. Yeah, which is unbelievable. Which blows my mind. Oh, yes. And any time I've talked to him, he said that he never had the opportunity to experience legal drinking. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, uh, which is very... He found his own routes. But, yeah, that's actually a perfect example. And then... Uh, of course, you know, uh, Randy, 21, and Paulo, yeah, two those, of my heroes. Those, those two guys are very active in the program. Very. So what's your background? I mean, where did you grow up, and, and what was your home of origin? I grew up in Irving, Texas, uh -huh. just, you know, suburb of Dallas. And, uh -huh. you know, what you would, if you'd ever asked me what my family life was like, Prior to looking at it, I'd say oh, I was in a super loving, perfect household. You know, we went to church three times a week and uh, Church of Christ, which is kind of like uh, the most militant version of Christianity you could possibly experience. And I, my early life, I <laughs> just remember being in church up yeah. until I was 16. And then around 16 years old, I got kicked out of my house for, you know, 
selling drugs. And yeah, and went to live with my grandparents in East Texas. It was either go to rehab in Utah or grandparents in East Texas, and I opted for the latter. So, how old were you when you first started using or drinking? Fifteen. You were fifteen. Took a year for me to. Yeah. So, what was going on in your family of origin that might have predicted that you would one day need to be an AA? Grandpa on my dad's side was a pretty heavy drinker, possibly an addict. Uh, Dad had mentioned, you know, he tried beer when he was like five years old and then never touched it again because he loved it so much and (laughs) stuck to that. Mom had an addictive personality in that she, you know, she would get stuck on something and would not get off of it. And uh, her mother was an addict as well, as well as her brother. So it's, it's my... Family history is littered through it, and we're Irish and, and American Indians, so it's. That's an interesting mix. I don't know the exact uh, what's the ratios, but two prone to addiction type. Uh, Those are two groups that are, that seem to have higher incidences, sure, of alcoholism than than other groups. Well, it didn't miss me. It, my sister got it, and then uh, my little brother. He's normal by all accounts, I guess. So you've got two siblings? I do. I'm the oldest. You're the oldest. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you said you're, uh, your younger sister, she just never got into it? She did. She did. She did. She's the youngest. And uh, our mother passed away when we were about, I was 24. That would have made her 15. Mm. And uh, I mean, we both pretty much did not take well to that at all. And then I moved to Chicago right afterward. She found her own path, so. But the beautiful thing is she just got three years sober. You guys are on the journey together. In AA? Yes. Wow, isn't that cool? So you can call up and uh, compare notes. (laughs) Yes, and you know what, always the, uh, did you pray about it? It's thrown around a lot. (laughs) Sometimes begrudgingly and jokingly, and then, but it's always the right answer. That's the funny thing. It certainly is. So it sounds like the alcoholism skipped your parents. Correct. Whether that was through just, I mean, finding a sufficient substitute being religion or, you know, if it act, the gene actually did skip them. Yeah. Uh, like I, I mentioned, my mom, I, 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 looking back now that she's gone, I, I can see uh, times or places where I addiction would have just run in different ways as mm-hmm. opposed to the drink or drugs. But uh, dad, I, no, he's just a, he's a normal guy. He's a normal guy. Yeah, like a saint walking around. <laughs> well, you can imagine with, with, with the number of people that I've known and also interviewed for the podcast, the great majority have things that look like pretty miserable childhoods. And I wanted to ask you, it sounds like you didn't necessarily suffer that particular problem it uh that's what i mentioned earlier that i it, i wouldn't have thought i was from a dysfunctional household but now that i've had time to step back from it it was incredibly dysfunctional like, oh, yeah. my parents frequently argued about money i realized that i never was able to tell my parents the truth about mm-hmm. anything that's right that's a big red flag and I think that a resentment that I kind of have is when I look at families who you see them at the dinner table uh, having family discussions and just sharing all their things. I'm like, I never had that. We never yeah. sat down at the dinner table. I, 
I was always living in fear of uh, consequence. And, you know, I learned at a very early age the good way to avoid consequence was to lie and not, not uh, you know, paint the narrative the way you want it to be seen. And so that was your way of coping with yes. some of the behavior. It was just to kind of lie your way out of it? Yes, and it, I've carried that with me for 30 years, you know. So is it, is it safe to classify that as a defective character? 100%. <laughs> I asked that question already knowing the answer. Yes. So um, was there any kind of abuse or physical or? No. I mean, very loving family in terms of hugs and, you know, support was there. Yeah. Uh, no physical abuse or any other kind. I mean, spankings, yeah. but I'm, I'm from, I'm from no. Texas. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, not the same thing. No. I. That's good to hear. I mean, I'm always so gratified when I meet people who have had a really good childhood, like one of the guys on the show. Um, he said, you know, Howard, he says, I look back at my childhood and I had a great childhood. And of course, me coming from the place I came from and knowing so many people who came from really fracturous type childhoods, I'm thinking, wait a second. You can't possibly be an alcoholic if you, if you had a, a cakewalk. Yeah, <laughs> right. a cakewalk or just a, a happy, normal childhood. Mm. And I remember his response to me was, Yeah, but I started drinking beer. And I thought, Huh. So maybe he didn't start for the same reasons I did, because mine was to blot out. Mm -hmm. When you were first drinking and or using, what, what was your drug of choice usually? Uh, well, I liked the way that alcohol made me feel. And from the very first time I had it, I drank abnormally. I drank to obliteration from the get-go. And I have a memory of sneaking some vodka somehow, and I was playing dominoes with my grandfather. You know, just friendly little game. And I would go to the bathroom with a Coke can every, I don't know, 15 minutes to fill the Coke can up with vodka. And it was empty. So I'm sitting there drinking straight vodka, 16 years old, playing dominoes with my grandfather. And Did he notice? No. I, I have always been, you know, we're, we're talking about 15, 16 years of drinking on the job and drinking in literally every activity I did. And I don't think anybody ever, ever noticed. How did it affect your school life? I managed to graduate high school from a small town and I dated a girl whose mother was in charge of attendance and had a lot of pool in the school. And so I manipulated my way through, you know, poor attendance records. And uh, I was just smart enough to where I could put, apply the very bare minimum of effort and squeak by, and that's just what I did. Was there a particular group that you hung with during high school? Oh, yes, yes. Wait, what were those? The, and this is funny because you're talking about being the most sheltered type of child that could have been raised to be like very good church kid, and I very quickly gravitated towards the the thugs. The thug. Yeah, I mean, I you would have thought I was trying to be Eminem, huh? And uh, like badass. Yeah, just wanted to be seen as a badass. It it was all just desperate for for uh, to be accepted oh, because yeah. Yeah. the church I grew up in, I wasn't, I was, it seems like I was an outcast because my parents weren't, my dad wasn't deeply connected with some of the more masculine guys in the church. And so mm -hmm. I wasn't invited on the hunting trips and this, that, and the other. And 
I had a resentment towards everybody in the church for that. And so I found myself being accepted by this uh, other group, you know. And it's like I'd arrived. And so now it was just like, it's almost like I lived in a way where I'd take a bullet for these people because they are the family that I wish I had. And, you know, it all just came to, okay, so, oh, so you're supposed to sell drugs? Oh, so you're supposed to steal stuff? Then that's what I did. So how old were you when you joined that gang? Probably 16, okay. you know, and I don't know what affiliations we had, but it was... A, just a group of thugs. <laughs> that's, yeah, just a generic run-of-the-mill, you know, ride around, drink, and use drugs, and just be overall degenerates, you know. Were there certain rites of passage that you did within that framework that you regret? Nobody ever put me up to anything. It was always like, let me show you what I can do on my own. And I've had, my parents have had, well, I think that person was a bad influence, or I think that person was really where you, and it's like, oh, I think those people were trying to pull me back. I was I was letting them see what I could come up with on my own. And uh, I mean, I remember one time I went around to a house. I was uh, my senior year of high school, and I'd gone around this little small neighborhood and stole beer from people's trucks and mm-hmm. went around opening car doors, trying to see what I could find inside these unlocked cars and went into a garage that was open at like two in the morning and stole a TV and some guns and some knives from an open safe. And uh, of course it's a small town of like 300 people. So someone saw me and uh, almost went to prison over that probably. I, I, I think I got in more trouble once I went and stayed with the grandparents because they were a little bit older and it was a little bit easier to manipulate in some ways, or at least they slept more sound and I could sneak out of the house at night, you know, and steal grandma's car at three in the morning and go cruising around town looking for drugs and alcohol. And Would you say that you engaged in a lot of criminal behavior, but you were not caught? Yes. As a matter of fact, if I had been caught for everything I did, I'd probably be in prison. And, uh, you know, uh, it's been so many things where the, the line between me getting caught and facing serious penalty and not being caught, it, it was actually that that made me first believe in God. So God was doing for you what you could not do for yourself, but it was all bad stuff. <laughs> yes. So he'll allow for the bad stuff as well as the good, huh? I, it just seems like he was saving me, for, saving me from absolute, like, serious, serious consequence mm. um, until I finally got it. And it took a long time, and it took like God showing up in ways. Yeah. In so many, so many. I got so many opportunities, and then finally it was like, okay, I get it. Yeah. I get it. You mentioned drugs and guns and uh, knives and that kind of thing. I actually stayed away from weapons as a whole, unless I was stealing them for money uh, or to impress, you know, the kids around that I hung out with. Uh-huh. Uh, I say that, <laughs> then you know. When I progressed to like 21 years old and was hanging out with slightly more aggressive drug dealers and that kind of thing, then I'd start always carry a um, unserialized firearm with me around, you know. Which, by the way, is an automatic 10-year felony. Uh, yeah, that's rough. Yeah, I don't know what kind of enemies I had, but uh, well, the kind that you get when you yeah. deal in illegal. But you'd be ready for them. Oh, uh, I guess so. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, there's a story from one time my door got kicked off the hinges when I was about 21 years old, and I had a 
a host of different types of drugs there. I mean, enough to put me in prison for 10, 15 years. And uh, gang members came through the door and uh, it happened two different occasions. The first time I was, it was one in the morning, three in the, I'm sorry, three in the morning and they got everything. You know, it was 10 guys and had me at gunpoint with a couple other friends I had over. And then they came back maybe three days later and uh, that time I was home and uh, I pulled a shotgun out and actually tried to pull the trigger at a guy. Mm. Um, and I still think to this day that the gun misfired and it was a shotgun. Otherwise, if it had not misfired, it would have blown him in half and I'd be in prison today. Be in prison. Wow. Guaranteed. And I, I look at that as, uh, I mean, yeah. How did you connect and did you connect at the time your alcoholic behavior with the criminal behavior? No, 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 no. everything that was going on was, the, the alcohol was, that was the one thing that was okay, right? Like all these other external circumstances were uh, the fault of the things I was doing from ad, of necessity to, to get by. And you know, it's funny, this time frame I was just discussing, I had a friend who was probably 21, and I can only assume that he had a parent who may have been in a, alcoholic or and he was the first person who ever told me I think I was 20 he was like guy dude you're an alcoholic and I was you know he's telling me that as I'm drinking a 40 a 40 ounce beer at you know 11 a.m. for breakfast and I I was like no you know like I, I really thought this kid was an idiot and uh, you know that behavior continued for years I mean I was a morning drinker for 15 years. So somebody called you out pretty early on. Very early. Very early on. And before I was even legally allowed to drink, someone told me I was an alcoholic who probably knew. And uh, I just didn't see it. I didn't see it for 10 more years after that. When you got out of high school, where did you see your life going? That was the thing I didn't, I didn't know. I had this fear of my parents always slightly squeaking by, arguing about money a lot. And so yeah. I knew I had a huge fear of money. I didn't want to experience that anymore. And I had a, fear, a huge fear of failure. Mm -hmm. But I had no idea how to avoid either of those pitfalls. Best thing I knew to do was work. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I did. I was, I've always been a really hard worker. Um, within a year of me graduating, I was working two to three jobs at a time, mm -hmm. constantly. Mm -hmm. And uh, also was putting myself through school. Yeah. But unfortunately, I discovered Xanax and uh, alcohol uh, mm. and used those in tandem with school classes. And it's really hard to do well on the test if you can't remember being in the class the day before. And How long did you stay in school? Uh, I dropped out probably four times in four years. You know? Did you ever get a degree? No, I've got almost a two-year associates. That's cool. Yeah, you know, it really hasn't hindered me tremendously. I've... I guess I was blessed with the, I always joke when you say I, I skate by on looks and personality. And it's you're a good looking man, <laughs> by the way, for any listeners. I appreciate it. I, I think that's been, I've, I've used that as a crutch to get out of stuff. And So you've used your charm to disarm. Yes, yes. Okay, there you uh, go. Well, so uh, you, you didn't have any direction about where you were going to go. Mm -mm. Uh, the alcohol consumption was always was already ramping up. You were hanging with 
a gang of, or a group of thugs mm. when you were 21. Um, and you said you had another 15 years of that? Yep. So what were the milestones within that 15 year period that you could look at and saw, maybe this is the time I should stop, but you continued, or did you try to stop it at all? Well, you know, we all have a drug that we say we're never gonna touch. Mine would have been heroin. And uh, next thing you know, by the time I'm like 23, doing heroin. And then my best friend, who was very, I mean, truly a good dear friend, you know, mm -hmm. whether it was involved with drugs or not, but he he overdosed and died. Oh, jeez. Yeah, that was rough. That was one of the first death experiences that I'd had, and I did not deal with that properly, but the bright side is I was no longer able to get heroin readily, and so I think that probably saved my life from, mm -hmm. you know, dying within that year. So you, you were addicted to heroin? Ah. Uh, it's kind of hard not to be. Yeah, that's what I was wondering when you said, well, I, I did that and then you didn't do that. And I'm thinking, well. That would be the, around the time that uh, I'd start raiding medicine cabinets and that kind of thing. Yeah. I was real big on that, by the way. Yeah. Your medicine cabinets were not safe if I was in your home, unfortunately. My sneakiness, good Lord. Mm. I mean, I was sneaky because I knew that I looked in a way that looked and could act in a way where I'd be presumed innocent presumed innocent at all times. And I really used that to my, to my benefit for years. I mean, and uh, I think that was one of the things when it came time to start working steps and stuff that was hardest for me to speak on. Now I speak about it like it's just a chapter in the book, you know, I made it out of that. But I was really, a, it was something I had to hide from. You were hiding from that for a long time. Oh yes, I mean, I was a really shady kind of guy dressed in sheep's clothing. You know, they always say, like, the type of guy who would uh, steal something from you then help you look for it for four hours. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you know. And uh, I was not raised to be that way. <laughs> There's a certain amount of shame associated or connected with that. Did you feel any of that at any time? Tremendously. Yes, yeah. it was crippling. How did you quell the shame and feelings? I drank it away. Did it work for the most part? 100%. I didn't even give it a chance to pop up. Because alcohol worked so well for me that, you know, I knew a few shots of tequila would uh, make me happy, you know, and, and it did. So you mentioned that you have always been a hard worker. You've always been good on the job. Mm -hmm. What was your work life like during, the, during that 15-year period before you hit the doors of AA? Just strove every day to be the hardest worker that possibly could uh, walk through the doors of a building. It was almost like a competition between me and everybody else without them knowing that I was gonna work twice as hard as everyone else. How'd you do in that competition? I, I was a hard worker, I did good. Yeah. Um, but this is the kicker, I was habitually late for about, you know, 15, 16, 17 years. And so, you know, I was the guy who, yeah, I'd show up, but I was gonna be 30 minutes late every day you know, and I lost probably 20, 25 jobs just from that. What was there about that? I couldn't tell you. I mean, you knew, you knew that, that you were late and they were firing you, I assume, with the idea that they're firing you because you were late. Mm -hmm. What were you telling yourself, though, about being fired for being late? I work hard enough to where I've earned this. So they should give you, a, they should give you some, some latitudes. Normal rules do not apply to me. 
So you come in 30 minutes late, but you're the guy who works the hardest and stays maybe a little later than everybody. Yeah. Yeah. The last one to leave. Now, wouldn't that have also set you in pretty good stead with some employers? They'll put up with your lateness? Yes. And it would turn out that those people who would tolerate those kind of behaviors, <laughs> those are where I went the deepest down the hole. Really? Yeah, because when you work that hard, it's got to be... It's not doesn't have to be, but mine was propped up with uh, drug and alcohol use. I was very, very functional alcoholic. Like I could do anything blackout drunk. And whether they turned a blind eye to it or not, I don't know. But I worked for a company, a uh, prominent steakhouse. It's uh-huh. all over Texas. And mm-hmm. it was maybe a few weeks after my mother died, they were going to send me up to, well, prior to her passing, uh, it was scheduled for me to go to Chicago and open mm-hmm. up a new location up there, right? And uh, it's a great opportunity. My mom was super excited about it. Well, when she passed, I really went off the deep end, and I was just a trash can for whatever I could possibly get my hands on. So I actually overdosed at work at that job on, like, I was on five different substances. I was drunk. Um, I was drinking at the job. Like, I would go to pretend I had your tab. I might go and just sneak scotch on your tab, see if you'd notice, and if not, if you did, I'd take it off, and really low character, by the way, these are things yeah. I'm talking about, and I guess didn't OD in a way to where hospitalization was required, but I was, like, out of commission, like, automatic grounds for termination, and that GM, he was like, that wasn't a GM, it was an assistant, but he he said, uh, guy, this didn't happen, I know you're going through a rough time, he's like, do not ever speak about this again. Do not come back in this building. Go to Chicago and start your life over. You know, at one point I was like, wow, that guy saved my life. And he very well may have. I mean. He cut you the slack that you needed at the time. Yes. He showed me some grace that, uh, I mean, maybe in hindsight it might have been better to lose that job and maybe face some consequences then. But I don't, I don't think it would have been enough. Yeah. I think everything had to happen exactly the way it's happened for me to be sober today. Well, with God working in our lives, that's pretty much a foregone conclusion. Mm. It just takes us a while to, to, to realize it. Mm-hmm. When, so how old were you when that, when that happened? I would have been 25 then. Okay, so you're 25. You're, you're working, you're taking drugs and drinking on the job. Mm-hmm. But still, you're a highly functional. Mm-hmm. You're getting the job done. I was one of the top salesmen, top performing employees. Right excellent reviews, uh, return customers who would come specifically to see me, and if I wasn't there, they'd leave, that kind of thing. You know, sometimes being a functional alcoholic is the greatest curse of all Mm. because it delays what is the inevitable coming. What's the problem? I don't have a problem, you know. and That worked for a long time for you, huh? It did, a very long time. Wow. And uh, it just made it, like my dad, after mom passed, he... uh, I was living with them before I went to Chicago, and uh, you know, one of the stipulations of me living in his house was no drugs, no alcohol, and I had to go to an AA meeting uh, once a week, right? Hmm. And uh, I just was like, I thought he was the biggest idiot in the world, mm-hmm. like, to think I'm an alcoholic. Like, yes, I drink a lot, but everybody does, you know? And I went to the meeting, I was probably on a cocktail of different drugs and now I'm nodding out in the meeting and he's sitting there next to me you know and go figure I didn't get anything from it you know and I I think that was did that experience ever pop up in your head again when it came time to get some help no I thought well yes because I thought well that's not an option because that wasn't effective going off of you know really poor data right Right. 
Uh, one, one meeting. One meeting, <laughs> not, not awake for. Yeah, right. Yeah, I get that. You mentioned blacking out, too. How, how often did you black out as a result of the drinking? Uh, often. As a whole, I always made it home fairly safe, but uh, I did fall asleep at the wheel a lot. I'm a really good driver if I'm awake, but when I'm asleep, I'm a very poor driver. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I've totaled four or five cars, three of which were my parents, uh, two were mine. Um, and you were never cited for DUI? Nope. I got incredibly lucky. I talked my way out of it every time. And there have been times where I remember one time I wrecked in the middle of a road at two or three in the morning and the car right behind me happened to be a tow truck. He basically said, give me $500 or you're going to jail. And my mom came, gave him the money and Wow. Got me hauled off the road. And I mean, I smelled like a brewery. And um, one time I wrecked a car I just bought that week. Uh, I was heading home from Hooters after winning a wing-eating contest. And of course, I, <laughs> I celebrated. I was three houses down from the house, my parents' house and ran into a neighbor's parked car going about 40. Oh, geez. Yeah, totaled both cars. Well, the police arrived. Mom comes out of the house and is beating me, like hitting me in the head. Just, you idiot, you idiot. Screaming, right? And uh, the police are like, man, you've got to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they say like, I don't know, there's no way these men did not know I was drunk, right? Like these, and I don't know, they didn't do anything. But for the grace of God. Seriously, because that would have been an ex a DUI. And then I got arrested for DUI one time I had marijuana on me, I had Xanax, so controlled substance, and I mm -hmm. took the pills before they could get to them. No evidence there. When I got to the station, I blew into the machine six times, and it read double zero each time. And granted, I am wasted. And they said that even a sober person rarely blows double zero into the machine. But I did it six times. So no evidence to prosecute for DUI in that case. And then there was a problem processing the marijuana. So there was no, I get let out the next morning. Did you make the standard vow that people do? I'll never do that again. Just get me out of this. Oh, many times. Uh, and then what do you think once you got out of it? I'd go get a drink. Yeah. Yeah. So we ask for God to help us get out of a bad situation. We get out of it. And then somehow we forget to thank God for getting us out. And we go to do the very same thing that got us in trouble to begin with. And, you know, that's a, there's a tremendous amount of shame associated with that as well. Yeah. Because it's like that. I have no follow through on anything I do. Yeah. You know what's funny is like I really looked at myself in a pretty good light. Like mm -hmm. if you ask me, like, who are you as a person? I'd say, oh, I'm a hard worker and I'm this and that. And, and those were true things. Like I was a hard worker and I, I was good hearted. But I would also steal from you. And I also had terrible character. Like the things I did behind closed doors were not good. And I remember the first time I'd ever been asked if I knew what character was, was by a physician that I was working for. Somehow I got an office job, right? Mm -hmm. Which I got fired for, from, fired from for drinking mm. uh, on the job. Uh, that was the only time I ever got caught. Mm. Uh, but one of the very, like one of the most respected Dallas Mavericks team physician comes up to me and he says, guy, he's like, do you know what character is? And I said, no. And he's like, character is what defines you when no one else is around. And he's like, guy, there's some things about your character that I find very disturbing. Very disturbing. Hmm. And I remember like, oh, God, he, he's, he knows, you know. And I don't even know what he was talking about exactly. He just read me well. 
What was your response to him? I probably thanked him for making the observation and then I would try to uh, improve upon that in the future. I don't remember exactly, but it was along those lines. Full, full of crap, dude, just full of crap. Whatever I think you need to hear to go away. Yeah, there's that lying again, huh? Oh, constant. We'll be right back. My friends, if you're enjoying AA Recovery interviews, I invite you to check out my latest audiobook, Alcoholics Anonymous, the story of how more than 100 men have recovered from alcoholism. This is the word-for-word, cover-to-cover reading of the first edition of the Big Book, published in 1939. It's a relaxing yet meaningful and engaging way to listen to the Big Book anytime, anyplace. Have a free listen at Audible, iTunes, or Amazon. While you're there, search for my other audiobook, Lost Stories of the Big Book, 30 original stories from the first and or second editions missing from the third and fourth editions of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's also available from Amazon as a Kindle book or in paperback if you'd like to read along. You're going to love it. And we're back. We're up to your middle 20s, and this, you know, this pattern after pattern after pattern mm. is just continually repeating itself. Drinking, drugging, blacking out, hard working, getting fired, getting caught, but catching breaks each of the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, everything about your exterior gets you out of trouble mm. in a lot of ways. Uh, did you ever get the sense that maybe you were kind of living on, on borrowed time, so to speak? Mm. Well, you know, a, a certain, it would never happen to me, right? Yeah. You know that? But uh, eventually that wore thin to where I realized what was going to happen because enough people had died between 20 to 28 mm-hmm. uh, where you're like, oh, this people die like from their drug use. And I use harder than any of these people who have been dying. Mm-hmm. And so it's like the chickens are coming home to roost soon. And it got to the point where when I go to bed, it was uh, I would uh, put the 911 on the screen to where like, I could hit the call button. So like if my heart stops in the middle of the night, hopefully with my last flail of my arm, I can reach over and hit the call button. And uh, He died because he missed the button. Yeah, he missed it by a quarter inch, but oh, good effort on his part, right? Oh, one time I was trying to get a job and the guy knew me from another company I'd worked at with him. And he says, guy, he's like, there's one thing I really remember about you. He's like, you were always a good talker. What he was saying there was like, you're full of it. Like, yeah, you can go and talk this amazing game, but there's nothing behind it. And I think that was probably one of the most astute observations that, you know, anybody could have made in that moment. Like, I was nothing but a propped up little, uh, you know, those little flyers you see at the movie theater with the actor and it's just cardboard flat. That was me, you know. You blow it over really easily. There was no second dimension. So how did you react to that bit of news? Hurt, thought he was an idiot, thought he was... uh, I'll show you, watch, you'll be surprised. And I think I really believed, you know, when I would say like, oh no, I'm gonna surprise you. I thought, I think that I really, uh, I bought my own bullcrap. Somehow in a convoluted sort of way, you heard the truth about yourself and it finally sank in? Not then. Not then. No. Well, tell me about when things started to unravel and attempts that you might have made to get sober during the next several years. Yeah. I think we have to fast forward all the way to like COVID times because it was just the exact same story. And then finally, uh, I've lost 
tremendous jobs at this point. I lost a job, you know, I was making six figures, which to me, growing up poor, that was, you've arrived, right? Yeah, sure. And now that's gone. So finally it gets to where drinking is no longer fun, right? And I cannot physically go to work without drinking before. And how old are you at this point? About 30. About 30. And, uh, you know, it was very common to go get a six pack and I'd slam six of those before going in. Mm. This is where I finally got caught at a job um, for the first time is, uh, I mean, I was falling all over the place, right? And um, the GM and the assistant GM come and take me up to the office and they sit me down and they're like, guy, it's uh, been brought to your, brought to our attention that uh, you're intoxicated. And I just looked at him with this cold blank stare like, yeah. And they're like, why, why would you do that? And I was like, cause that's what I do mm. every day. And then the GM was like, okay. Uh, fair enough. Come back tomorrow. And uh, I did not come back for about three or four weeks. I think I lied and said I was going to this rehab or whatever, whatever. I just couldn't stop. And then it was getting bad, man. Like it was no longer, it was misery every, the second I woke up, it was like, I wished I was dead. You had, it sounds to me like you had an incredible amount of fortitude for, to do what you did for so long before it finally started to have that kind of impact. What do you attribute that to? Fear of being a failure. That's what drove you through that type of behavior to still be able to be a functional alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So when did that, that functional alcoholic moniker get stripped off of you? Right around then, 31, it just, COVID, I have no job to go to, so I'm pretty much useless, And but I still have my, I have to shut off the, the head, right? And so, whatever I can fuel, and like the dosages are going way further up, mm -hmm. consequences are, you know, like I really felt like my heart was gonna stop at any mm -hmm. time, mm -hmm. and it probably was. It was like, I gotta, I gotta get help, right? So I took mushrooms to get sober. I decided that would be a smart idea, right? Which people- Psilocybin. Huh? Yeah, a little psilocybin therapy, self-prescribed, and- uh, Did it work? I don't know. I had an experience where, I mean, I was detoxing from, self-detoxing myself from alcohol and, uh, uh, opiates and cocaine and uh, all at the same time. And so I meditated through that while on psilocybin and I looked at the sun or the moon and I saw my mom in it and I just said, I'm done. And I probably drank. Within the next few weeks, I was going to Zoom meetings frequently with our friends that we would know from poker night. Right. And uh, I latched on real well with uh, Neil, who I still attribute to this day to saving my life. Yeah, he's a good man. He is. He's got some sort of deep connection with a higher power that he can harness to rescue a guy out of the pit. Because I don't think I'm the only guy he's done that with. But I was so full of shit, dude. I yeah. mean, so full of it. And I just didn't see it. And then mm -hmm. finally one day Neil told me, like, I, he's like, you know what I think, guy? And I was like, what? And he said those exact words. He's like, I think you're full of, I think you're full of it. That was the first time it struck me, like... Hmm. Oh, maybe this is true. Maybe I'm so, I, I was just smart enough to like keep it at bay. Like I didn't actually see the truth. Um, I had everybody fooled, even myself, and then nobody else is fooled, but I still was. And I thought everybody else was like against me, like out to get me. And uh, when I came to the idea that like maybe I am just like a, psych a psychopath, like just an absolute, I'm so absurdly just out of my mind that 
everybody could see it except me. Everybody saw it, and then instead of with the curtain open, the curtain closed with you in front of the curtain, and you were alone. Mm. Yep, nowhere to hide. So how did you react to that when, when Neil gave you that? That hurt, because I didn't respect Neil a lot, and I thought I was being genuine. Yeah. And I remember thinking, I was like, God, I thought this guy was really smart. Like, I thought he really had it together. This dude's an idiot. And this is while you were going to the Zoom meetings. Correct. And so you met him through the Zoom meetings? I met him. The first time I ever went to poker night was in person. It was right before everything shut down. Okay. And he came to me while I was in the bathroom and gave me his number. He apparently does not do that. Um, so that's kind of cool. So uh, had you actually stopped at that point or tried to stop? I, you know, countless vain attempts. Uh, I, I probably was a week sober, three or four days sober at that meeting. And then I'd go for like a month and then... You know, AA works so well that I, I don't need it after a few weeks, right? It was right. the kind of, and. Uh, That's easy to hide on Zoom too, isn't it? Yes, but this is one thing I can say. I never did lie about my sobriety in a meeting or outside of it. Like, not to like my fellows at least. Right. Um, if I was messed up, I was going to tell everybody and I'd hijack the meeting yeah. and make it about me. And. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> How often did you do that? I probably did it. I don't remember all those times, but I, I can remember three times maybe that I, but I probably did it five or six. And most good AA meetings will let a guy go on for a little while mm. just to kind of drive home that point. Everybody's seeing that behavior, knowing. Apparently when, I, when I'm drunk, I'm, I've got a mouthpiece too, so I can really probably say some things that are pretty entertaining. So it probably went on for like yeah. <laughs> seven or eight <laughs> minutes before they finally cut me off. It's so sad because these people are my friends now, right? Like these are people who... Thank God they got to see me that way mm -hmm. because Randy, maybe a couple weeks ago, he's like, man, he's like, I remember when you came in these rooms, dude, he's like, you were a, you were a nut. He's like, not a, a sane thought came out of your mouth. Not a sane word came out of your mouth. He's like, now you're, he's like, you're well, he's like, you're put together guy. Yeah. And something. Yeah. So did you actually uh, do any kind of rehab? I knew that, that the things I was dealing with were more than what you can really, anything would have been fine. And I was desperate, right? And the girl I was dating at the time, she was kind of a, she liked me being in that moldable, yeah. desperate state because she could, you know. And so I had finally, I, saw, I had my last four or $5,000 and I made an arrangement to go to the a rehab facility of whatever would take me essentially with the amount of money I had and uh, she talked me out of it uh, oh. a few times and I'd call my guys and I'd be like yo I'm trying to go here but my girlfriend thinks that I should not go and they're like you need to leave her right away you were gonna die yeah cuz there are enough guys in the recovery community associated with rehab centers in AA that plenty so that's what you did you called these people and mm -hmm but she still had a hold on you? Yes, and that's when they identified, like, look, <laughs> that, that woman is, they correctly identified that she was not good, at least not for me. So you had to make a choice? I did, and uh, man, the combination of kicking all the drugs and the alcohol and your, your significant other, mm. who you live with, that was daunting, more than I could have ever done on my own. Because I remember seeing you, I guess the first time we, we met or saw each other might have been on a Zoom call, because I don't go to poker night, but... Uh, 
Maybe some of the other live meetings you were at. Yeah, it. I, I don't admittedly remember the first time that I made your acquaintance, but the funny thing is when I look back at the past three years, you're always there. Yeah. Maybe we made a, it may have been at Avenue B. Maybe Avenue B, maybe uh, the uh, catacombs meeting too. Well, that one for sure. Yeah, that one for sure. But and it was, it, I, you know, you you came in. You look like almost everybody, anybody else, uh, when you came in. I'm glad I didn't have the chance to see you. I maybe I did see you on Zoom while you were still. You wouldn't have recognized me. I wouldn't have recognized. No, there's a common joke that I, I looked like a roadie f for Slipknot, which <laughs> if you, yeah, and I didn't see it. I thought I looked fine, but yeah, I in hindsight, looked yeah. terrible. So what were your first meetings like when, uh, when you finally decided that you were going to stop for good and all? I would share really well. When I, I, there were several occasions where I thought I was going to stop for good and all. Like I was a member of the No Matter What Club and this and uh -huh. that and the other. I, I mean, I, and I get blindsided. But like I, I'd share... People would come up and be like, man, really like to share, especially newer guys. But older guys, they just, they saw it. They, they saw this manipulative, uh, narcissistic personality that was just saying what I needed. And I, I couldn't see it. Yeah. Anyway, so finally, I think when progress started being made, I was a lot more quiet. And I said, I don't even know if I can't trust the words that are coming out of my mouth. Mm -hmm. So, and it kept it short. And I remember hearing things like, you know, first minute or two is God speaking. Anything after that is nonsense. So I kind of kept it short. Once I worked the steps of the sponsor and completed them, which would have been, you know, probably two and a half years ago, mm -hmm. I was very quickly restored to some form of sanity. Wow. But I just realized I was fully aware of how full of it that I was. And I could, I was much more keen on just sharing the message. And if it didn't have anything to do with it, what was coming straight out of a big book, then I really didn't say it much. Huh. Um, when did you get a sponsor? It would have been three and a half years ago. I got one. And I mean, in all honesty, he was awful. And lots of guys who know me now were like, yeah, that guy was awful. Three and a half, so that would have been during the, the still drinking days. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, you know, um, trying to stay sober, just not. And, uh, and he wasn't doing you any good. No, he 18 years sober, never worked a step in his life, and was darn proud of it. Oh, jeez. Yeah, like they say. In, that, that's the wrong sponsor. Yes. And he I'll was, come right out and say it. That is the wrong sponsor. He was the biggest jerk I think I've ever met in my life. Someone who, if I'd met him on the street, I'd probably want to fight him. Yeah. And so in my eyes, what I was doing is I was like, well, if I can do what this person, who I would normally beat to pulp, if I can do what he tells me to do, then that shows tremendous willingness on my part. Oh, yeah. And whatever bullcrap you yeah. want to insert. Uh -huh. Just uh -huh. anyway, so finally I had Neil and uh, my current sponsor on the end of a Zoom call. I hijacked them and was like, guys, so I've decided that I'm going to be uh, looking for a new sponsor and uh, you two are in the running. Like I'm doing them some <laughs> sort of favor, right? Like that's how delusional I am. <laughs> and Neil's like, well, I'm out. <laughs> and He gave me as much as he could, I'm sure. Yes. Well, he actually had a much greater... As he saw me healing, oh, yeah. he 
I mean, he was right there. Like he was probably my strongest support. Um, but you know, Patrick took it on and I know that Patrick was like, this guy is not going to make it because I think everybody saw that. But he, he, he's like, well, I mean, I'll sponsor you, but it's not going to be any different than what anybody else is going to do. He's like, you're not going to like anything I have to tell you. And it was like, I don't remember what I said, but I was like, okay, okay. Did that same determination to succeed carry over into your AA program? Yes, this time. But it always did. It did. It always did. Like, I always was so well-intentioned. It was very few, like, realized reservations. Like, mm -hmm. I had them hidden. Like, mm -hmm. I'm pretty good at, you know, compartmentalizing the truth from myself. Mm -hmm. um, but in this case, the same vigor, you know, like, the same, like, what I thought was genuine de desire to stay sober was there. And this time I had a guy who works steps and reads the big book. Like, he is a big book thumper. Yeah. And turns out that's what I needed. He was like me. Yeah. He was a bullshit artist, you know. I mean, he's a good-looking guy who knows how to talk. And uh, yeah. and the beautiful thing about that is that the gift that he has now is that he's so attractive to newcomers in a way that, like, he he can make good and he's, he talks well. Yeah. And you want what he has. Yeah. And I wanted what he had. I knew that he was, I was like, if that's how I end up as a sober person, I guess I can tolerate that. So tell me about the working of the steps with Patrick. He had me read the various passages every day, mm -hmm. which, you know, I think people had told me to do in the past, um, which I never did. With him, I actually did it all the time. Um, and I was always so desperate to tell him, like, oh, I did this thing that you told me to do. Like, I'd call him and be like, hey, just got done reading pages 63 through 6, you know, da-da-da. And he's like, cool. He's like, you you finally have done what someone told you to. And he's and, and I'd be like, yeah, and I, tomorrow I'm going to do this. And <laughs> and he, he finally, like, after about two weeks of me telling him what I'm going to do in the future, he's, he's like, look, man, he's like, I, I don't care about what you say you're going to do. He's like, respectfully, I'm not trying to be rude. He's just like, why don't you just, uh, he's like, your whole life has been spent around saying what you're going to do and not doing it. And he's like, how about you just do it? And then report. Yeah. And uh, I remember that hurt my feelings pretty bad. Um, but I understood. How long did it take you to get over that? That moment? Yeah. Pretty quick. Okay. I just, uh, I, I realized very quickly that there was very little ego in the way Patrick was sponsoring me. It was not about making himself look good, which is something I definitely encountered in the past with lots of people. With him, it was one thing. And it, what's funny is it does stem from a very selfish reason, but it was one thing, and that was to help pass the message that he used to keep me sober. And the reason I say it's selfish is because, in turn, it's keeping him sober, which... Absolutely, man. That's the key. So he, in the process of sponsoring you, he was essentially training you how to be a sponsor, too. And I didn't realize it at the time, but that was 100% his, that was, that was what we were doing. Well, so eventually we went from the Zoom meetings to the live meetings. Mm -hmm. When did you make that transition while you were already in recovery? I did, uh, well, we never met each other in person until he wanted to go over the fourth step and we met at a coffee shop. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think I continued, I finished the steps within three months of that period, and then everything slowly started opening up. Oh, yeah. And uh, 
at that point that we were so comfortable with Zoom meetings that it was just way more convenient. So I maybe waited until, I probably had about 10 to 11 months sober, uh, having worked the steps uh, for uh, in-person meetings that kicked up again. After I'd worked step 11, and which was something that was really, prayer and meditation has always been a really, really crucial part of my recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, I was struggling with something, and he's like, you just don't see it, do you? He's like, and he'd laugh. He'd be like, you just, you just don't get it. And he's like, you gotta carry the message now. He's like, that's why you're having these problems. That's why, he said, you're still wrapped up in yourself. He's like, go. So he made me go get some sponsees. So me being ambitious, I got, I think like nine <laughs> in one week or something like that. Something yeah. outrageous. And uh, How many of them lasted? Unfortunately, zero. Unfortunately? That's old language that I'm using there. At the end of the day, you know, I... Who stayed sober? Oh, nobody. Did. I did. Oh, no, that's not uh, me. <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. That Let's wasn't a trap, did. I said. I just... No, that was... It's, it's just something that is so... Um, it's sad when men who have what it takes to be a good sponsor and help other men get dejected when mm -hmm. the men they sponsor don't stay sober. Mm -hmm. And then that very fact makes them stay away from sponsorship in future. Mm -hmm. And so that's why, like, whenever you said that, I, I knew I was going to say something in response. And I, and I just did. So uh, somewhere along the way, I think you were telling me about how many meetings you were going to. And I said, you know, probably throw another one into your mix of meetings. Mm -hmm. and Phenomenal advice. I think you and I have seen each other in enough meetings that I may have, on a few occasions, tried to hook you up with some guys uh, to sponsor. Yeah, you probably have. Uh, so where are you at currently with sponsorship? I don't have a single sponsee. It's funny, this this pivotal amount of things that are going on in my life right now in terms of new career. The guy who helped me get this new job that I'm taking on, right? Yeah. He works with... He has, every week, he has a commitment. He, uh, I think it's like an H&I type thing. Sure. But he, you know, he's got 10 years, and we were having dinner the other night, and he told me about, he didn't say a number, but he's like, yeah, I've taken a lot of guys through the steps. And I remember it was like, it wasn't jealousy. It wasn't quite envy, but there was some guilt. It was just a, a, whole, a lot of emotions. Sounds like shame that that he did it and you and you weren't able to do it, and competitive. Yeah, and competitive, but more so just I'm missing a big part of yeah. what this has to offer. I mean, what <laughs> Patrick had me read 88, you know, often, right? Yeah, I like that. We know you will not want to miss it. It is one of the true highlights of our life. He's like, are you seeing any kind of like they're highlighting this for you? You know, this is what it's all about. And um, carrying the message is what this is about. Having not gotten a single guy through steps and I probably haven't sponsored anybody in about eight months. Okay. Okay, so that just means you're preparing for it. And offline, we'll talk about some of the things that you can do. There are any number of halfway houses around town mm -hmm. where men are looking for sponsors. And a lot of those guys don't stay sober. So you might be walking into another situation, but it's like what you said earlier about how you and Patrick came together, mm. that something about him that reminded him of himself and you mm. and that sort of thing. What my sponsor had me do, Guy, is he said, next time you pray, 
why don't you just ask God to put somebody in your life yeah. to, that you can help? And, you know, and, and essentially say, God, let me not miss the next opportunity to be of service. Mm-hmm. And you, this happened the other day where I, the, I asked the guy after the meeting, do you have a sponsor? And he said he didn't, but he's on the lookout and he's going to rate him. And like you, you know, he's going to oh, yeah. go through his punch list. I said, listen, hang on a second. I pulled the guy over from this meeting mm-hmm. and I said, uh, this is so-and-so. He doesn't have a sponsor yet, but he's looking for one. And the guy who I pulled over, who you and I know well, said, listen, I'll tell you what, why don't I sponsor you for 30 days? Why don't I show you what a sponsor is? And a little, you know, somebody you can know and sit next to in meetings and that sort of thing. We won't make any long-term commitments, but if it continues to work, we'll go on. If it doesn't, we won't. And something about that, it was, it was so, it was subtle, but it was also very caring. And I was glad that the man who I asked to do that, and he was just, he just happened to be the closest guy to me at the time, because, you know, people congregate after the meetings. My guess that God is that God has somebody or somebody's in store for you. And it's just you opening yourself up to the possibilities. I have no doubt. Uh, I know this because when I got all those nine sponsees that time, I, the prayer I prayed for, what, maybe it took three days. You know, God, I'd like some sponsees. That was real generic. Just sure would like you to give me some sponsees. And they poured in. So. Let me ask you, have you ever gotten back in touch with any of those nine guys beyond the point that you knew that they didn't want you to sponsor them? Not over the past year now. I mean, that was almost a year ago. Do you see any of those guys in meetings with other sponsors? No, I don't, unfortunately. be interesting to see how many of those guys stayed sober. I, I have thought in the past about making that phone call. Maybe even just sending a quick text, text message because... Of course, you know, the asking someone to be your sponsor or, or relating to them that you did drink and so forth, mm. those, are, those are absolutely pride breakers. I oh. mean, they, they trash the, the self uh, in, in a big way. I've made the text. I've had sponsors reach out to me while I was in active addiction and be like checking on me. Ugh. And it might be that that text comes in Right at the very moment that, that that man is ready to make the decision to do exactly what you did and finally get to the point where enough was too much. And mm. so I, I encourage, without, without investing any more of your hopes and dreams in these guys, keep your expectations at rock bottom. And I think you might be surprised. And they might all come back and say, um, I'm back to drinking and life is going great. And you got to be careful about that, too, because alcoholism loves to tie into those stories and say, God, that guy was such a mess, but now he's able to drink and he's OK. Yeah. What's wrong? What's wrong with me? <laughs> <laughs> so I see that not to be too much of a prognosticator, no. but I kind of see that in your future. Mm. And I love seeing you in the meetings. Let me ask you, because I've noticed that habit of being late, has that followed you into AA? That habit of being late, I'll call it a percentage. It's improved from crippling my life and being like, you know, it, it penetrated the fabric of my life, you know, that, yeah. that terrible threat. Uh, I can't say 100%, but like I'm, uh, it's like a night and day difference in yeah. terms of how yeah. I, my yeah. attendance is. Usually I'm early and occasionally yeah. I'm, right on time but cool yeah that's a miracle 
Yeah, it is a miracle. That's a miracle. And that just kind of happened. You didn't set out to do that, did you? No. It just occurred. I asked for all my defects character to be removed. I feel like that's probably a... <laughs> wow, what a great demonstration that that particular defect of character has been arrested or put into suspended animation. 20 years of that, right? I just left a great job. If you ask them about my timeliness thing, <laughs> it wouldn't be something they mentioned, hmm. you know what I mean, in a bad way. And you're starting another job, so you've got, you, as you always have, you've been able to go from job to job and perform, but what's it like performing as a sober man as opposed to an alcoholic well, in his cups? I'm uh, told I'll be, I'm, I'm, I'm missed. Huh. I have coworkers and uh, like managers who reach out to me on a fairly regular basis and just say it's not the same without you here. Mm. Uh, we miss you, you know, a lot. Like, this is a lot. It's almost like, how is that even possible? I never had anybody. It was, nobody ever reached out. They were all glad to see me go, huh. you know. And I thought, I would have thought like, oh, they'll miss me when I'm gone. No, no. Yeah, they didn't. No, that was delusional, man. And now I genuinely have friends, lasting friendships, possibly. Because yeah. there's some good people in. And all your friends in AA. And I know you've got a ton of them. And it's, it's beautiful to see you demonstrate that in meetings and after meetings that you do have people who want what you have. Now, whether they want you as a sponsor or not, that's another story. But chances are when men want what you have in general, it means because you're that kind of guy. That is what you just said is valuable. Someone did mention, like, I am a service. Yeah, you and, are. and I like to beat myself up and well, we all do. Yeah, I, I love yeah, it. Yeah, you, we, you we all do. There's a rush that's involved in, <laughs> in, in saying, you know, if I get it a little bit, why can't I get it a lot? Mm. You know, and that kind of in that kind of self indignation mm. that that dogs us at every step. You know, because again, I mean, the disease is still prevalent. It's still there doing its push up. Mm. It's waiting for any little crevice it can exploit. Goodness. And it sounds to me like you've been doing the things that are necessary to stay sober for, by the time this is released, three years, mm -hmm. which blows my mind. And, and man, I really, I really honor your commitment to doing that. I want to ask you one or two other quick things. Please. With regard to your spiritual life, have you seen a marked improvement since you've been in AA? There's no, I, I, I'm a different person. What kind of difference have you noticed? I mean, I wake up every, the second I wake up, uh, I pray. Mm. Uh, God is uh, constantly on my mind, you know, like uh, my conversation with God. And if it steps away from more than a few days, I feel it. I meditate deeper, but differently than I used to. Like, I used to be trying to win some sort of meditation contest. Now I'm just trying to figure out what it is that God wants me to do next. And uh, it feels like I'm flowing in life uh, m the majority of the time in that. And I, and I see that in you, and uh, I think That's others do as well. <sighs> What's really cool about this interview, uh, Guy, is that you've given me the opportunity to see how God was working in your life when you weren't sober, mm. and now to see how God's been working in your life sober. And my guess is God hasn't changed. <laughs> <laughs> that uh that is a very good observation no 
always yeah. been there. Always there. Always there. Whether it's I noticed or not, was there. It's a matter of awareness, mm. isn't it? It's a matter of awareness. One final thing, and I don't always ask this, but I, I think it might be interesting. Um, let's say you could go back to Guy at an earlier age in your life, with all the knowledge you have right now. Which guy would you revisit, and how old would he have been at that time, and what would you tell him? That's such a hard question because, you know, I'm very happy with who I am today. And mm -hmm. I know that I could not have gotten to be, the, I, not to say that I'm wise, but that whatever wisdom I do have, mm -hmm. it came at a very difficult cost, right? And I think I can do a lot more with it. Um, and I'm alive. Yeah, and that's important. One of the reasons I ask that is because somewhere in our lives, in addition to being sober, there are other turning points. And I just wondered if there was one turning point in your life where you might have been open to the idea of a different type of life. <laughs> I knew everything at that. I mean, part of me wants to say like, oh, maybe if I'd gone back to 19 years old and when I started using alcohol medicinally, you know, uh, Probably nothing anybody could have told you. No, nah, I don't even think that me showing up out of a spaceship is stepping out and being like, hey, it's me in 25 years. I think I probably was dumb enough, like headstrong enough to think that I could change the outcome yeah. while drinking. Yeah, I get that. Which is sad, but that's, that's yeah. who I was. Yeah. Well, who you was is not who you is mm -mm. right now. And, uh, and I really appreciate that. And I'm so grateful to you for doing this interview. The fact that you could do it on such short notice goes back to that, the immediacy of your affirmative response to being asked for help with service in the program. And that's why I think you're a step ahead of a lot of people. That's what we do. Yeah, it is. Well, my friend, thanks again for doing this. Oh, thank you. And uh, I love you. And I'm, I, love I, appreciate, you. I appreciate you. And uh, good luck with your program. And let's stay close. Yes, always. Well, my friends, that's it for today's episode of AA Recovery Interviews. I want to thank my guest, Guy R., for sharing his story. And thank you for tuning in. If you've enjoyed the interviews in this podcast series, will you do a little service work by spreading the word about this rich and meaningful listening experience? This show is another helping hand of AA we can all extend to alcoholics everywhere. AA Recovery Interviews is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and all other podcast providers. Or visit our website, aarecoveryinterviews.com, where you can listen to every episode of AA Recovery Interviews. And if you want to contact me directly with any comments or suggestions, simply email howard at aarecoveryinterviews.com. Please also take a minute to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. By the way, this podcast strictly adheres to AA's 12 traditions and all general service office guidelines for safeguarding anonymity online. I pay all podcast production costs. AA Recovery Interviews and my guests do not speak for or represent AA at large. This podcast is simply my way of giving back to AA that which has been so freely given to me. The next episode of AA Recovery Interviews is on the way, so keep coming back. It'll be here soon. <laughs>